Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. smell of grass, dirt, and frogs filled the air around my messy brown hair. I would play outside with reckless abandon as long as Mum would allow, milking every last second of the warm sun that would fill my thoughts and dreams until the next morning when I would bolt out the door and do it all over again. I would spend time with friends and family in a world with a single goal. What mattered was the people in my life and nothing else. As school progressed, I learned that my career would command the best of my time. You see, I would still be a friend, a son, a brother, and a husband, then later a father. There would be little time spent working on those parts of my life. My days, weeks, and years would be spent learning how to be a better student, a better college grad, a better worker, and if I worked hard enough, I was told, a better boss someday. My world smells different now. The aromas and my ambitions of my childhood have long since been altered. Now the smell of paper and bad coffee fill the air in my office, car, and kitchen table. These are what I long for in my day. They are what I run after now. I have forgotten about my unquenchable thirst for spending time with those important in my life. My focus is sadly not conflicted. After all, it's how we spend the best part of our day and how we measure our success in life. There really isn't an award for world's greatest dad. It's just a mug. But there are many awards in various forms for various achievements handed out in countless ways. And this is what we all run to in one form or another. There are times when I get glimpses of the life I thought I always wanted. You see, my kids still play like that coming home late, all sweaty, wanting to tell me about the snake that they almost caught, or asking if we can go to the swings after supper. One more underdeck, Dad. Please. As my daughter looks up to me with eyes that I said I could never say no to, my mind slips to another big presentation tomorrow, 8 a.m. That door that doesn't shut right, still doesn't, no matter how much I Google sticky door. I really need to start running again. I'm not gonna lose 20 pounds by eating less carbs. I have no time to run these days, it seems. When you run with reckless abandon, you run free. But you run with a purpose. One that brings you the rewards we all longed for. simple life. Well, I want to welcome all of you here to uh, at Central Campus, as well as those of you who are uh, joining us online in the Calgary area and beyond, and those of you who are meeting together at one of our regional campuses in Airdrie and Bridgeland in South Calgary and also in Crowfoot, Northwest Calgary. So we're in a series we're calling The Pursuit of Simplicity, and so far we've learned that simplicity is not 
about doing less or about working less necessarily. Simplicity at its core is the will to do one thing. Many people's lives are spiraling out of control these days because they're devoting their lives not to one thing, but to a myriad of things. And this is a recipe for a life that's out of control because we are not wired up to go in two directions at the same time. Although, Lord knows, we try. Um, now, I'm sure that you'll agree with me uh, that one of the things that contributes significantly to the complexity of our lives is relationships. Uh, people are complicated, and as a result, uh, relationships are complicated. As someone once quipped, life would be amazing if it weren't for people. While some people struggle with having no friends or very few friends, many others struggle big time trying to maintain a large number of acquaintances and casuals, casual friends. Add to that the expectations, the conflicts, the hurt feelings that often accompany relationships, and you have all the makings, not only for significant frustration, but also complexity in our lives. Well, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus invites us to bring our weariness and relational challenges to him, to learn from him. For as we do, he promises that we will find rest for our souls. We will find more simplified living. In preparing for this message, I reviewed the life of Jesus in the scriptures, in the gospels, and I came away with two major observations on how Jesus viewed relationships. To begin with, Jesus highly valued relationships. In Luke chapter 10, a man approached Jesus and asked him, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered and said, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. In short, Jesus said, If you want to live with God forever in the next life and live a joy-filled life in this one, then love God and love people. Now, let me be clear, to love God means more than to have mushy feelings for Him during a weekend service. No, it means that you have entrusted your life to Him. It means that you have asked Him to forgive you of your regrets and your sins, that you're walking and you're talking with Him daily and carrying out the assignments that He gives you. But with that clarification in mind, Jesus essentially says that in this life, Nothing is more important or fulfilling than loving God and loving people. Now, the sad thing is it is possible to live your whole life and miss out on that. It's possible to live your entire life pursuing a career, fame, material success, and miss out on the most important thing that God created us for, a relationship with himself and with the people that he brings into our lives. Several years ago, I came across an article taken from a New York newspaper, which read as follows. Bosses of a publishing firm are trying to figure out why one of their employees had been sitting dead at his desk for five days before anyone noticed. 
George Turkelbaum, 51, who had been employed as a proofreader at the New York firm for 30 years, had a heart attack in the open plan office that he shared with 23 other, other workers. He quietly passed away on Monday, but nobody noticed until Saturday morning when the office cleaner asked why he was still working during the weekend. His boss said, George was always the first guy in, in the morning. He was the last to leave at night. And so no one found it unusual that he was in the same position all that time and didn't say anything. He was always absorbed in his work. He kept much to himself. The paper went on to state, the moral of this story is, don't work too hard. Nobody notices anyways. <laughs> now, when I first read this story, I wondered, how is it possible for something like this to happen? For an individual to be dead in his office chair for days in an open office concept and not one of the other 23 employees notice. I know it's New York City. That explains a lot. But you would think that even one individual would have cared enough to say, good morning, George, how you doing? And hung around long enough to get a response. But let's not be too hard on this particular office staff. Based on um, what the boss uh, said, I wonder if no one reached out to George. Because over the years, George focused so much on his work kept so much to himself that with the passing of time people just quit trying to reach out to him and left him alone thinking that that's essentially what he wanted. We really don't know of course but whatever the reason I just think this is a very sad story of a man who died seemingly never having experienced the joy of true friendship. You see God never intended for us to do life alone. He wired us up to be in relationship with himself, but also with others. The God of the Bible is really a community of three persons. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, each of whom is God. All three persons of the Godhead have the same attributes. They perfectly love one another. They perfectly know one another. They perfectly serve one another. These three are close. They really enjoy each other. What that means is that they have never been lonely. And therefore, they didn't need to create us. They wanted to. They wanted to expand the circle of love, the, 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 the loving community that they experience every moment. Genesis 1.27 says that God created us in his image, which among other th things means that regardless of how hard or calloused a person may appear on the surface, deep within the heart of every individual is a yearning for God and a yearning for meaning relationships with people. In Genesis 2.18, the Lord said, it is not good for man to be alone. In other words, we are designed to do life with other people. And when we go it alone, we are not only missing God's best for us, but we're actually hurting ourselves. 
In fact, you know, the American uh, Institute of Stress has conducted extensive research on the impact that a lack of social interaction has on our health. Some fascinating studies. One study, they discovered that men who had endured high levels of emotional stress but had little emotional support or interaction with others were three times more likely to die than those who were in close relationship with others. I think we should stand right now and just give every man in this place a hug. What do you think? Be sure to hug somebody before you go. Another study showed that people who had a poor diet but close relationships lived much longer than those who ate a healthy diet but had little or no relational connection. And so the implication of that research is it is better to eat cheesecake and donuts with friends than broccoli and carrots alone. <laughs> Jesus said, pursue relationships. Because when it's all said and done, your relationships are going to mean a lot more to you than your achievements. One author put it this way. He said, you know, I have been at the bedside of many people in their final moments when they stood on the edge of eternity. And I have never heard anyone say, bring me my diplomas. I want to look at them one more time. Show me my awards, my medals, that gold watch I got from the company. You see, friends, in our final moments, we're going to realize that our relationships, our relationship with God and our relationship with those that we love is what life is all about. Which brings me to a second observation from the life of Jesus. Not only did Jesus highly value relationships, he also highly valued genuinely close friendships. Jesus loved his heavenly father and he loved people. On a regular basis, he would go off by himself to be with his father, to pray and to receive his father's instructions and assignments for the day. He also loved people. Everywhere he went, he was constantly blessing people, healing people that came across his pathway. Mark 6.34 says, when Jesus landed, and by the way, that's not with a plane, you know, he just landed with a boat on the seashore, okay? When Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He loved people. He talked with people. He ate with them. He ministered to people from all walks of life. He loved God, and he loved people. And yet the very first thing that Jesus did when he began his ministry at the age of 30 or so was to surround himself with a small group of men for companionship, encouragement, and to fulfill the mission that his father had given to him. When Jesus came to earth, he was fully God and he was fully man. But while he was on earth, he chose not to exercise his divine attributes he chose to experience life in the same way the rest of us do, which explains why Jesus longed for companionship, even as we do. 
why he invited a small group of others into relationship with himself. In Luke chapter 10, we read that Jesus had a large circle of friends, at least 72 of them, who were close enough to him to be called his disciples. But even that number was too large for the kind of friendship that Jesus was looking for and longing for. And so he prayerfully and intentionally selected 12 disciples to be his small group, as it were. And from that group of 12, Jesus had three, Peter, James, and John, who he spent the most time with and seemed to be closest to. Now, what Jesus did here is instructive to us. We are not designed to manage a large number of friendships. And the reason is, is you can't microwave genuine friendships. You can't cultivate close friendships in a hurry. You can't listen in a hurry. You can't play and have fun and give your undivided attention to someone in a hurry. You can't rejoice with those who rejoice in a hurry. You can't mourn with those who mourn in a hurry. Neither can you reach out and serve others in a hurry. Genuine close friendships require a significant investment of time and effort on our part. And given our busy lifestyle today, we'll all have a hard time making that kind of investment in a few people, perhaps up to 10 people. And so let me ask you, how many close friends do you really have? I've had our people put a Starbucks-type table up here to my right because more and more, that's where we meet people and uh, at our coffee shops. And I want you to imagine that this table over here to my right um, represents your closest friends. Now, aside from your spouse and your immediate family, who are the people in your life that you meet with regularly? Who are the people who serve as a refuge to you, who are open and transparent, and make it easy for you to be open and honest with them? Who are the people in your life you can count on to have your back in times of trouble? People you can count on to be at your side when illness or disaster strikes? Who are the people who affirm you, encourage you, and just love to see you excel? They're not in competition with you. They celebrate your victories. Who are the people who love you enough to tell you the truth in love and hold you accountable in those areas that you've asked them to? On that basis, how many friends like that do you have around your relational table? Now, sadly, research tells us that aside from our spouse and our immediate family, on average, most of us have very few, if any, friends like I've just described. And this is especially true for men. Sociologists tell us that on average, the average male in North America has only one friend like that, and that's the average, which means a significant percentage of men don't have any close friends at all. And what is even more alarming is what most men call a friendship 
most women call a casual acquaintance. And the sad truth is, given the warp speed that most of us travel at, very few of us have genuine close friends, nor the time to cultivate close friends. What most of us call close friends are casual friendships. You know, people that you wave to in your community, your neighbor, you know, for the 70th time, how's it going as you drive by? People that you might have a casual conversation with after church or at some community event where you talk about politics or you talk about your favorite sports team or even people that you might get together every few months to have a coffee or share a meal with. Now, there's nothing wrong with these type of friendships. They're important. They're a part of life. And Jesus had at least 72 such friends, probably many more. But he intentionally surrounded himself with a small group of 12 to do life with. And he, he encourages us to learn from him in this regard if we want a life of simplicity. He is teaching us here that even though we need to be open and, um, and to show Christ's love to those that, that God brings our way as he did, the key to simplicity is to join together with a small group of three to ten people or so for companionship and in accomplishing the mission Christ has called us to. So practically, how do we do that? Well, first of all, you have to determine what is the one thing that you're giving your life to. I've said this throughout the series, that simplicity at the core is the will to do one thing. Everything hinges on this question. The Apostle Paul clearly articulated what the focus of his life was. When he said in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ. Even though his life was full of hardships and challenges, he lived a life of simplicity because he had one focus, because he had one overarching passion, because he was listening fundamentally to one voice, and because he had one master, one Lord, that he was giving his life to. And his friendships stemmed from that. Which brings me to the question that I've raised several times in this series. For you to live is what? Are you clear about what it is you're giving your life to? How you answer that question will impact everything else in your life. It will impact your values and your goals, your lifestyle, it will impact your eternal trajectory. And yes, it will impact your relationships, including the kind of people that you hang out with and what you do with them when you're together with them. <coughs> if for you, for example, to live is to party, then many of your friends will be those who live to party as well. If for you to live is around some cause, like saving whales, or combating injustice, 
then many of your friendships will likely be with those who have similar passions. Now, on the other hand, if for you to live is Christ, if for you to live is to put your complete trust in Jesus Christ, to see his kingdom come, to see his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, if for you to live is to walk with Christ, to talk with him and to listen to him and to do the assignments he calls you to do, well, then the people who will be around you and your relational table will be those who are as passionate about living all out for Jesus as you are. You see, it all comes back to the fundamental question, for me to live is what? And sadly, so many people never grapple with that question. They just do life. And when they come to the end of it, they kind of go, well, what was all that about? Because they gave no thought to what they were giving their life to. Jesus was very clear on what his mission was in this life. In Luke 19.10, he said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. His mission was to bring all people back in right relationship with God. And he intentionally surrounded himself with a small group of people who were open to him, who were willing to journey with him and to join him in fulfilling the mission that his heavenly father had called him to. And so I ask you again, for you to live is what? If it is Christ and you really mean it, then you'll want to grow close to him. You'll want to learn to hear his voice through the time that you read and study the scriptures. You'll want to hear his voice through his whispers. And you'll want to ask him to show you what special assignment he has for you. Sometimes God appoints us to the assignment that he has for us through whatever we're experiencing in life, which might include hardships. It might include loss. Or perhaps it might include the hardships and loss of other people. All through the scriptures and down through history, you find story after story of people who either experienced some hardship in their own lives or they were exposed to people experiencing hardship that just wrecked them. And it brought them to the place where they just couldn't stand seeing one more person die of starvation. They just couldn't stand to see one more child die of disease or trafficked into the sex industry. They just couldn't stand one more per seeing one more person succumb to their own addictions. And God used their holy discontent to call them to start a ministry directed at that specific need. You study history, and you'll discover that almost every world relief agency that exists today, almost every orphanage, school, healthcare agency, hospital, college and university, prison ministry, inner city agencies ministering to the poor, the abused, the forgotten, were started by Christ followers who couldn't stand it anymore. And since God calling them to give their lives to meeting those needs, 
<coughs> the question is, what is your holy discontent? <clears throat> what have you experienced in your life that on the one hand has either been so awe-inspiring or on the other hand has been so hard and painful and frustrating that every time you think about it, a firestorm erupts in you that says, I've got to do that or I've got to invest my life in that. I've got to fix that or do something about that. Not that God calls all of us to start a national or international ministry. He may. But the principle we see in Scripture is, the first, is to first be faithful in the little assignments that God has called us to. Responding to the needs and the opportunities that are right in front of us. Ministering to that young person or to that small group of children. And leaving it to Christ to lead us to a larger ministry if that is what he has in mind for us. You see, that's essentially my story. After committing my life to Christ at age 12, there were people who reached out to me, who included me, who loved me and walked with me in the church that I attended. As I dealt with the pain and the devastation of a broken home. And then a few years later, I found myself turning around and doing for others what had been done for me. Beginning to invest in the life of children and youth a few years younger than myself. And marveling, just marveling, and how God could use someone like me, a 16-year-old kid, to introduce others to Jesus and to provide hope and encouragement and spiritual direction to them. And it was through seeing what God intended the church to be, to just living in that environment, seeing how God could use the church, ordinary people like you and me, to impact people's lives, both in this life and for eternity, that led me to embrace his calling to serve him full-time in ministry. If you aren't sure what God's call is for your life, keep asking him to show you and anticipate him revealing it to you because he will. Don't just sit there But step out and expose yourself to the needs of the poor in our city and around the world. Go on a missions trip. Get familiar with the needs in your community. Talk to one of our pastors and get familiar with the myriad of ways that God wants to use you to impact lives. Children, youth, adults, the hurting, the less fortunate right through the ministry of our own church. That's the first step. Determining what it is you're going to give your life to. Until you sort that out, everything else will be a blur. 
your relationships will be disconnected. The second step is to pray about who God would have you ask, join you in that one thing that you're giving your life to. This is what Jesus did. Before he invited anyone, he spent time in prayer, seeking God's direction and affirmation about who he was going to invite on this journey with him. Luke chapter 6 verse 12 says, One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. And he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of whom he designated apostles. Now notice, he prayed all night before he chose the 12. Notice also, it says he chose 12 from among the other disciples who were there. We're not sure, but it's possible that 72 disciples were there. He chose 12 from among them. Now, here's a question. If you were one of the disciples there that day who wasn't chosen, how would you have felt? Would you have accused Jesus of playing favorites? I'm sure that there were some of the disciples maybe that felt that way that day. But it didn't seem to concern Jesus. But to help you with why it didn't, or at least why I believe it didn't, let me ask you this. If I needed one of you to help me carry something to my car after the service, and I picked, oh, let's see here, who can I pick? I'll pick you. Um, what's your name? Bruce. All right. And I picked Bruce to be the one who was going to help me take something to my car. If I asked Bruce to do that, and I picked him to do that, would you conclude that he's my favorite? That he's kind of someone that, that I favor over the rest of you? That I like him more than the rest of you? Well, perhaps some of you would conclude that. But the truth is, I need someone to help me take something to my car, and so I need to pick someone. I picked Bruce for a purpose. In the same way, Jesus picked the 12 disciples for a purpose. In fact, let me take you back into the Old Testament. A lot of people, you know, get kind of bent out of shape about the fact that God would choose Israel as, you know, his chosen people. People think, you know, that the Israelites are God's favorites. And that's one of the reasons we have half, most of the world that doesn't like the Israelites today. But see, the fact is, God chose the descendants of, of, of Abraham, the Israelites, for a purpose. He didn't choose them over other nations because they were his favorites or because they were more righteous or because they were smarter or better looking than other people. No, he chose them for a purpose. To be his representatives in the world, even as he now chooses us, his bride, the church, to be his representatives in the world. And so make no mistake, Jesus chose his 12 disciples not because they were his favorites or because they were necessarily better than any of the other disciples. He had a mission to accomplish. He needed to start with 12. 
And these are the 12 he went with first. His plan was that the initial 12 that he invested in and journeyed with would turn around one day and invest in another group of disciples and so on and so on which of course has happened down through time. And then thirdly, prayerfully approach those that God has laid on your heart from among your network of friends. Share with them the vision that God has given to you and invite them to join you. Perhaps God has called you to reach out to troubled youth in your community or perhaps to the people in your condo complex. Maybe God has has called you to play a deeper role in confronting injustice or the hurting, hurting families. Or maybe he's calling you to invest more deeply in the families and the children and the youth who are coming right to our um, campuses every weekend. And you want to invite a small group of others to join you in this venture that he's called you to because you see, God never intended for us to do things alone. Even in the things he lays on our hearts, he wants us to do it with others, to do it together. Perhaps you're not even clear on what God has in mind for you, except you know he's calling you to follow him more closely. And so you would simply say, would you like to join us in learning together what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ? All that to say this. Jesus' example here instructs us that one major way of simplifying our lives is to align our closest friendships with the mission that God has called us to. For example, rather than trying to balance family time and time to serve others in the church, why not simplify your life by serving God together as a family. Rather than trying to balance family time and time to reach out to our neighbors, why not simplify your life by reaching out to your neighbors together as a family? Having neighbors over for supper on occasion, beginning to spend time with those in our neighborhood as a family. Rather than trying to find the time to cultivate deeper relationships with a long list of people, and also trying to find the time to invest in the vision, the mission that God has called you to, why not simplify your life by sharing what God's laid on your heart with some of those friends in your relational network and inviting them to journey with you in growing closer as friends, but also in pursuing that which God has laid on your heart. Some people will sign up and say, yeah, let's go for it. Other people may not and that's okay if you already have a small group of close friends around your table but you have to admit as someone did just a couple of weeks ago to me that the group that they're part of has become ingrown and stagnant why not agree to pray together specifically asking God to show you as a group how he would like to use your small group to make a difference. Because if you ask him and you expect him to respond, he will show you. 
You know, God created us and he put us here to fulfill his purpose. God wants us to enjoy this life. God wants us to enjoy him and each other. But you see, we're not just here to put in time. We're not just here to drink lemonade in the shade and to live the good life. We're here to join our Lord on his mission, which is to introduce people to Jesus by being his representatives, his hands and his feet of love and grace in our world. It's an incredible adventure we're being called to be part of. But it's going to require that we be wholly committed to God and to God alone. It's going to require us attuning our ears to the voice of God and having the courage to follow where he leads. And yes, it's going to require us praying that God would bring people around our relational table who will not only be genuine friends, but will walk arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder with us in fulfilling the greatest cause ever given to man. I'll close with this. Tim Weigel was a sports broadcaster in the Chicago area who passed away a few years ago from a brain tumor. He was a bright man. He was a graduate of Yale University. He loved music and the opera. But when it came to recognition, when it came to wealth, when it came to success, he had it all. He'd experienced it all. When his doctor told him that he had a brain tumor, it wasn't long afterwards that his ability to achieve was severely diminished. At his funeral service, his daughter talked about one time when she was taking him home uh, from chemotherapy. And he reflected on how he just couldn't do anything anymore. He couldn't be on television anymore. His old job was gone, and it wasn't coming back. He wasn't able to write. He wasn't able to read. He wasn't able to focus long enough and do any tasks that required sustained attention. There would be no more promotions. There would be no more achieving in this life. He could only do, um, he, could, he could not only do, he, he could not do any of the things that enabled him to achieve so much for so long. He was going to die. And then he said this to his daughter. Now I get it. None of these things really matter. It's all about love. Love of people. Love for my family. Love of my friends. I get it now. Now, according to Jesus, Tim Weigel almost got it right. It is all about love. But in the verses I quoted near the beginning of this message, Jesus added one more thing. He said, yes, it's about loving people. It's about loving your family and your friends. But most importantly, it's also about loving God. Jesus said, love God and love people. Because you see, one day this life will end. Jesus once said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? 
One day this life will end. And maybe it will be a brain tumor. Maybe it'll be a heart that stops beating. Maybe it'll be a car that misses a stop sign. Life will not go on forever. And at that moment, as wonderful as it will be to know that you are loved by your family, that you are loved by your close friends, as you face eternity, their love will not be great enough or strong enough to save your soul or to give you the peace that only God can give. At that moment, you will need the love of God. You will need the love of his son Jesus who loved you and me so much that he died on an accursed cross to make it possible for us to spend forever with God in the next life. Jesus is one friend who will never, ever leave you or forsake you because he is eternal God. If you don't know him, he's reaching out his hand to you even right now. He's been pursuing you. You just need to know that. He has been. He's calling on you to invite him into your life by faith. And when you do, he will invade your life. He will become one with you. He will become your closest friend. And he will walk with you all the way to the finish line and off into eternity. My prayer for you is that you'll understand that and you will embrace this Jesus who loves you more than you'll ever know. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? you open your hands to him again and the two questions we've been asking would you ask him Lord what are you saying to me right now and the second question is what do you want me to do about what you're telling me take a moment right now with him
Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for these people whom you love and whom your son Jesus died for. Lord, I pray that all of us will have realized in a new way that even if we don't end up with the biggest office in the corporation or with the biggest bank account or the most well-known name, if we love you and love those that you bring into our lives, we will be incredibly rich in the end. I pray for anyone here, oh God, who is into achieving more than loving. I pray that something will have clicked for them and I pray that they would make a decision. They would be making it even right now. To change their focus, to change their priorities, to turn their life towards you. most importantly, Lord, if anyone hasn't embraced you, I, I want to pray that you would pour out your love and grace to them right now by your spirit. Lord, they'll sense your love. They'll reach out to you in faith. And I pray, Lord, that if they're resisting all of this right now, for whatever reason, that you would cause them to be restless until they find their ultimate rest in you. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you for the family of God, the church. Thank you for those relationships in our lives that we hold dear. Thank you for not just creating us and then leaving us, but all oh, wanting to know us and to walk with us and to use us, Lord, to bring all people back in right relationship with you. I pray that you would show us each and every day how we can love you and others more. For we pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.